Thank you, Gleaves, for that very kind introduction. When he mentioned that my elder son is decided to become a historian, I think it does make a statement about the business of doing history and what my son has learned from watching me do history, but it's not exactly the statement that Gleaves suggested. But my conclusion from this, and my son Hal is, what should we say, candid enough to suggest it himself, and that is that after all these years of watching me do history, he figured that, well, it can't be that hard. After all, if his old man can do it, you know, who can't? But Gleaves and I were talking just a little bit before, before now about our approach to teaching, our approach to classes, and we are comparing notes about how we deal with large groups. We both teach large classes. I teach an introductory survey to American history at the University of Texas each year. And it's typically about 300 students. And so we try to figure out techniques, devices to bring students into what we're doing and to get them interested. And Gleaves was sharing with me how before each of his lectures, he lays out a series of questions about what he's going to cover in that lecture. And the questions are as kind of open-ended as Okay, so what's the big deal about Jamestown? What's the story on the secession crisis? And that strikes me as a very valuable way of approaching any topic, of introducing any topic. And I'm going to steal a page out of Gleaves' notebook by posing a question to you. And the question is, what's the big deal about democracy? And I'm going to share with you an experience that I had with one of my classes. But before I get to that, I'm going to share with you, I'm going to impose upon you, inflict upon you, this big theory that I have of American history. And some of you have been to an earlier lecture, and so this might repeat a little bit of what I've said, but my big theory of American history is that there are two characteristics. There are two institutions, there are two value systems that characterize American society in the United States. And these two value systems are, these two institutions are democracy and capitalism. And if you had to describe the United States in two words, you could call it a capitalist democracy or a democratic capitalist system. And so, when I'm Describing American history, I often use these two themes as a way of explaining how American history develops. And look at the development of democracy. Democracy today is not what it was in 1900. It's not what it was in 1800. It evolves over time. America's capitalist economy, the free market private enterprise system is not today what it was in 1900. It's not what it was in 1800. So we can trace these two themes over the course of American history. Now, interestingly, to me anyway, democracy is a principle, is a word, is a set of values that every American elected official is quite happy to embrace. If you listen to speeches, if you listen to debates, public officials are quite happy to embrace democracy. That's what America stands for. It's very rare that you hear an American public official embrace voluntarily unprompted in a speech 
capitalism. They might use euphemisms that the word capitalism will not cross their lips, despite the fact that they near, nearly all accept the idea that capitalism is a good way to go. It's a great way to organize an economy. I did an experiment with a class in American history. This was a couple of years ago. No, it was, it was in 2005. George W. Bush had just been reelected. And this was the spring semester which began in January. So during the space of 10 days, George W. Bush was going to give two major speeches, both televised. One was his second inaugural address. The other was his State of the Union address. And so I told my students that I wanted them to watch the speeches. This was a course in American history. They should watch it. It was their civic duty, if not their assignment. I wasn't going to require it exactly, but I was, well, to be honest, I was going to bribe them. And I said that if you watch these speeches, actually, I didn't even put it that way. I said, if you can, because we were talking about this question of capitalism and democracy and, and how one seems easier to cling to and openly own up to than the other. I said, okay, if you can hear, if any of you can hear President Bush utter the word capitalism, or, and maybe it's cognates, capitalist, capitalistic. In either of these two major speeches, then you all get the week off. You don't have to come to class, you don't have to read the assignments, you don't have to take the tests or quizzes. Okay, so they listened. <laughs> and they didn't hear it. I knew they wouldn't. I can't remember the last time any president has uttered the words. Well, this is a really interesting puzzle to me. And I don't know exactly what the answer to this puzzle is, what's wrong with the word capitalism? Almost nobody in American society, certainly in American government, challenges, disputes the idea, but somehow this word has acquired a bad odor and nobody wants to go near it. Contrast this with democracy. Now, democracy, if you listen to those same speeches, democracy must have been uttered 25 or 30 times. I'll put the question to you this way. What is the objective of the Bush administration, the current Bush administration, in Iraq right now? We've got a small group here. I can throw out the question. Anybody want to give me an answer? What is the stated objective? Why are American troops there? Democracy. To establish democracy, precisely. What do you think would happen if President Bush said, American troops are in Iraq to establish capitalism. Dead silence. That's probably, I think it probably more than dead silence. A lot of people would say, we told you, it's all about oil. It's for the big oil companies, right? Okay. Now, I say this certainly by no means to criticize capitalism or by no means to criticize democracy, although it might sound like that in just a moment. Because my question is, what's the big deal about democracy. I, this preface is by way of noting that democracy in American society is considered sort of an unalloyed good thing. In fact, generally speaking, people are quite happy to accept the premise that if the United States does establish democracy in Iraq, then the mission was successful. It's almost as though democracy can do no wrong. Okay. Now, I'm going to challenge that view, not in the context of Iraq today, but in the context of American history. 
because if, it seems to me that if it doesn't work in America, it probably doesn't work anywhere. I think the United States is the best example of a functioning democracy. Anyway, keep that in mind as I shift gears slightly and say that this evening I would like to speak in praise of James Buchanan. This is a lecture series on American presidents and I've got to speak on behalf of James Buchanan because nobody else will. <laughs> James Buchanan is widely considered by historians like me, no, no, not like, by other historians, not me, by other historians, by political scientists as one of the four or five dismal failures in American history. Someone who had not simply no good impact on American history, but a seriously evil impact on the course of American history. And why? Because James Buchanan was the president who let the South secede and didn't do anything about it. Okay, well, I'm going to tell you why James Buchanan, in fact, was, should I call him a good president? No, I don't want to use the term good. I want to say that James Buchanan was an honest president. James Buchanan was a president who represented the spirit of American democracy, the whole idea of democracy, better than, oh, let me just pick another president out of the blue, Abraham Lincoln, his successor. Now, I know Bill's going to chuckle, and he's waiting for me to make this case. Fans of Lincoln will be appalled. And I have to admit, there are a lot more fans of Lincoln in this room and anywhere else than fans of James Buchanan. But James Buchanan refused to oppose the secession of the South because he looked at his Constitution and he couldn't find anything in there about secession. He couldn't find anything in there about the president having the authority to oppose secession. He couldn't find anything about raising an army to wage war on another half of the country. James Buchanan did not live in a time of public opinion polls. So what I'm about to say is impossible to confirm. But I don't think that many historians would challenge what I'm about to say. They might challenge the consequences, but I don't think they'd challenge the truth or the accuracy of what I'm about to say. James Buchanan recognized that if the American people had been able to vote in a democratic referendum on the question of secession, or more precisely, should the South be allowed to secede? Or to put even finer point on it, should the North take up arms, or the rest of the Union, take up arms to prevent the South from seceding? The answer would have been resoundingly, let the South secede. Needless to say, those states that seceded would have voted in favor of the referendum. And I would argue, and I say again, I can't prove this because the measures of public opinion were very rudimentary in those days, but every indication is that public opinion in the North would have been, well, maybe some would have said they're wrong. Not everyone would have said they're wrong by any means. 
But even if they were wrong, okay, let them be wrong. To fight a war to keep South Carolina in the Union when South Carolina doesn't want to be in the Union? We might argue about whether South Carolina ought to be in the Union, but I'm not going to send my sons off to fight over this question. I happen to think that James Buchanan was right on the constitutionalism of secession, which is the Constitution is silent on secession. And I think he was right on the popularity of secession, or maybe I should say the non-popularity of opposition to secession. Okay, now, I'm going to contrast James Buchanan with Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln came in, and Abraham Lincoln was in that rare position in American history where one person can decide for or against war. It's not supposed to be that way. It's not supposed to be a president deciding on his own whether there will be war. The Constitution says Congress shall declare war. And the framers of the Constitution deliberately made it that way. The framers of the Constitution knew that a war would work for the United States only if it was a popular war, only if it was a war declared by the body that represented the people. The president's role in war kicked in after the war was declared. The president was commander-in-chief. It was Congress that said whether we need a commander-in-chief at all, whether we're at war. But Lincoln was in a position where he essentially could say whether there would be a war. Well, except that there never was a war. The Civil War wasn't a war, at least not in the formal sense. There was never a war declaration by Congress. Lincoln never called it the Civil War. You know what he called it? Called it the rebellion sometimes. Sometimes he called it an insurrection. Of course, in the South, they have lots of euphemisms for that in their charitable moments. And I've been living in Texas for the last 25 years. I got to digress for just a moment here. <laughs> I grew up in Oregon. I went to college in California. I lived back in Oregon for a while, and then I went to Texas. I went to Texas for graduate school. First time I'd ever lived in the South. And I was, I'd been teaching high school for already for six or seven years. And now I found myself teaching at Austin Community College. And I was teaching American history. And I was teaching the portion of American history that dealt with the Civil War. Now those of you who are teachers know what I'm about to say. And those, any of you who are you know, salespeople, any of you who've been in a position where you're speaking before a group, you can tell when your audience is sort of paying attention, your audience is with you, and you sort of got their attention, you know, there's the nodding maybe, and you get the body language and all that, and you can also tell when you're losing them. And I really could digress into something funny, but that would be way off the topic on the same subject. You could ask me a question if you want later. Anyway, I came to the section on the Civil War. And I had taught in, well, Oregon isn't exactly Yankee country, although I have been accused of being a damn Yankee while living in Texas. But at least Oregon fought on the side of the Union. And it simply was part of my, what, un unthinking understanding of history that in the first place, the North won the Civil War. And secondly, that after the Civil War, the South either, either was or should have been at least a little embarrassed about starting the whole thing. 
well, I got to Texas, and needless to say, nobody was embarrassed at all. And secondly, they didn't even agree that the South lost the war. Okay. So anyway, Lincoln is in a situation where he can decide whether there's a war or not. If Lincoln had said, we're going to let the South go, that would have been that. But Lincoln decided we're not going to let the South go. Well, what he really said is, I'm not going to let the South go, and then I'm going to raise an army to prevent the South from going. Now, Cleves and I were also having a discussion about the causes of the Civil War. And I'm going to... Now, this isn't a digression. This is directly involved. What was the Civil War all about? Or to take Lee's approach, what's the big deal about the Civil War? What was the Civil War all about? The Civil War is generally thought to be about North versus South. I would argue, no, no. Well, I don't say no, no exactly. But I would say it's at least as much, it's more about East versus West. Not so much North and South, but East and West. And here again, I'm going to argue in a non-disprovable conjecture. You can't prove me wrong. I can't prove it right, but you can't prove me wrong either. That's good enough for me. I got the four right now. But here's the deal. As long as secession consisted of South Carolina and Georgia and Mississippi and Alabama and even Virginia, secession did not threaten the future of the United States. The Southeast could have seceded. It would have become this small state geographically circumscribed by the rest of the Union, by the rest of the United States, surrounded by the United States. The Confederate States would have been off there in the southeast corner. What really triggered Lincoln's opposition and his determination to fight was the secession of Arkansas and Louisiana and Texas. What is special about those three states? Having been in Texas this quarter century, I can tell you lots of things are special about Texas, but what do those states mean for secession? What do they mean to, let me say, a Westerner like Lincoln? What's special about those three states as opposed to the other states that seceded? There you go. They're across the Mississippi River and when those states go out, it means that the Mississippi River is now at the mercy of a foreign country. And from the days of Benjamin Franklin, who negotiated at Paris at the end of the Revolutionary War, insisting that the United States get control of the mouth of the Mississippi River, to the presidency of Thomas Jefferson, who sent diplomats to Paris to purchase New Orleans and wound up with all of Louisiana, to January 8, 1815, when Andrew Jackson became a hero of the American people by winning the battle of, what was the battle of? New Orleans. New Orleans. Okay, it was all about the Mississippi because the Mississippi represented the future of the interior of America and the future of the American West. Whoever controlled the Mississippi controlled the West. This was what the Civil War was all about. Oh, yes, it was about slavery, sort of. Slavery was what prompted secession. But there were a whole lot of people in the North who would have said, 
look, we're better off without those slave states. Let them go their own way. And we can go our own way. There were plenty of Republicans who said, let the South go. We're going to run the country when all those Southern Democrats are gone. But when those Southwestern states went out, then Lincoln had to fight. And Lincoln from Illinois. Illinois' lifeblood was the Ohio and Mississippi River system. Now, it is a curiosity of history, sort of a curiosity of the history of technology, that secession occurred just when it did. If it happened 20 years later, the reaction in the North might have been quite different. As late as 1860, water travel was the way things went long distances. But by 1880, by 1880, if you wanted to travel across the United States, how did you go? Railroad. By railroad. Railroad freed the United States from the tyranny of rivers. Okay? Imagine, suppose things had held together till 1880 and the South had seceded then. Suppose there were already three or four transcontinental rail lines. Then this argument that, okay, the South has taken out the Mississippi River it would have had much less effect. Anyway, enough of that digression, back to the main part of the story. And the main part of the story is Abraham Lincoln engaged in a fundamentally undemocratic act in taking the Union to war to oppose secession. Okay? Now, well, actually, you don't you nod or you don't have to say agree with my okay, but nonetheless, that's the argument that I'm making. And I think it's a pretty strong argument, which then raises the question, okay, so what's the big deal about democracy? Is democracy always going to give us the right answer? Was Lincoln wrong in opposing secession? See, here's a case where doing the right thing, and I happen to think Lincoln did the right thing in opposing secession, I think North and South are far better off because of Lincoln's action. But this was an action taken not in pursuit of democracy, but in spite of democracy. Do there come moments, critical moments in history, where leaders of democratic societies have to do undemocratic things? Does democracy sometimes give us the wrong answer? Let's try some other examples. In the 1930s, Franklin Roosevelt, a liberal president, elected on a liberal platform, had to deal with the long-standing issue of race relations in the country. Franklin Roosevelt was as liberal-minded as the next person, maybe not quite so liberal-minded as his wife. Eleanor. Eleanor Roosevelt was something of the Roosevelt family and the Roosevelt administration's conscience on civil rights. Eleanor Roosevelt was constantly pushing her husband Franklin to do more on the issue of civil rights. In 1937, supporters of civil rights, opponents of the Jim Crow system of segregation in the South, opponents of the brutal practice of lynching in the South, proposed a federal law outlawing lynching. 
a federal law was required because of, well, how shall I put it, the failure of democracy in the South. Lynchings occurred quite regularly in the American South. And they were often done, sometimes in broad daylight, often at night, but in the full view of hundreds or thousands of people. It was quite apparent who the ringleaders of these lynchings were. There would be no problem in identifying who was responsible for these murders. But it was impossible to prosecute the murders successfully. And the number of lynchers who were convicted of murder was minuscule. Now, why was this so? Because southern courts were directed by southern judges. And these were all white judges. And here's the more important point. They were all elected judges. In the South, let me ask you, in Michigan, how are judges chosen? Are they uh, state judges? Are they county judges? Are they elected or appointed? Elected. Okay, okay, this is not unusual. There's some states where they're appointed. Ah, now how, how are federal judges chosen? Appointed. appointed. This is a big deal. It's a big deal because if you are elected, and in Texas typically, judges in many cases were appointed first, but they had to run for election. And what often happened was it just became a habit that when a judge wanted to retire, instead of waiting till the end of his term, he would retire early, allowing the governor to appoint a replacement. But then at the first election, he'd have to run. But he had at that point the advantage of incumbency. Anyway, the Jim Crow system in the South had effectively disfranchised all African-Americans. So everybody voting was white. And the judges knew they were being voted for or against by white voters. And so they knew that it would be unpopular to convict the perpetrators of these lynchings. The juries, in any case, would be all white. And so in most cases, no one was even brought to trial. Now, this was defended by those people who chose to defend it as an exercise of Southern democracy, of simply, you don't have to call it Southern democracy, democracy, majority rules. And if a majority thinks that lynching is non-prosecutable, okay. Well, the supporters of a federal lynch law wanted to take this crime out of the state courts and put it in federal courts for the principal reason that federal judges can be just as unpopular as they want because they've got no-cut contracts for life. You can't get rid of them. And, now wait, what does this mean? This is a recognition of a failure of democracy. What you're doing is you're taking this question out of the control of the people of America and giving it to these essentially unaccountable judges. Okay, so... Civil rights reformers in Congress are pushing for this federal civil rights law. Eleanor Roosevelt thinks it's a great idea. African-American leaders, of course, think it's a great idea, too. And they're pushing Eleanor to push Franklin to push the law. And Franklin doesn't want to do it. Why doesn't he want to do it? Because 
He knows perfectly well that in the American Congress in the 1930s, the Democrats had large majorities in both the Senate and the House. Democrats, yes, but who were these Democrats? Well, in fact, the Democrats who controlled the important committees in the Senate and the House were almost to a man, and they were all men, almost to a man, Southerners. Because the South had this habit of electing people again and again and again, and so they acquired seniority. Now, Roosevelt had to weigh the advantages and the disadvantages coming out in favor of an anti-lynch law. He knew perfectly well that it would alienate all of those Southern Committee chairmen in Congress. And he knew perfectly well that once alienated, they would never support his New Deal legislation, legislation that had nothing to do with race relations. And so he made a calculated decision. He said, I can't come out in favor of the anti-lynch law because if I do, I'll get nothing passed. Okay? So Roosevelt backed off and the anti-lynch law was never passed. He dragged his feet on other aspects of civil rights for precisely the same reason. Civil rights reform was left to a later generation. Now, I have, to, uh, as Gleaves pointed out, I, this is my eighth lecture, so I, I have to try to remember what I've said and what I haven't said. Have I described to this group the catch-22 of American politics and why a Southerner could never get elected president? Okay, those of you who've heard me say this, nod or raise your hand or something so I'll know. Okay, a few of you? Ah, all right, well, that's not enough, so I'll go ahead and tell the story anyway. But I'll elaborate a little bit more this time. Because I have to explain how Lyndon Johnson came to be president and how Lyndon Johnson finally managed to push through civil rights legislation. Is this familiar to some of you? Yeah, but okay, anyway. Lyndon, oh yeah, I remember what I said, okay. Um, I, actually, what I'll do is I'll just kind of cut to the chase. Lyndon Johnson became president in 1963 by the tragedy that befell his predecessor, John Kennedy, who was assassinated on November 22, 1963. And how many of you have been to Dallas, to Daly Plaza in Dallas and seen the site, the assassination? Um, speaking as somebody who's lived in Texas, I can tell you that Texas has been, not so much recently, but for a generation, was horribly conflicted about this assassination because have, those of you who've been to the site, have you been to the Sixth Floor Museum? Yes. Yes. If you visit the museum, you can see some downright scurrilous headlines in Dallas newspapers bitterly opposed to John Kennedy. John Kennedy was a Democratic president. Texas was a Democratic state and Dallas was a Democratic city in a Democratic state. But John Kennedy was bitterly opposed. I should almost say violently opposed, but that would give credence to the conspiracy theories. However, there were people in Texas, in Dallas, who cheered when they heard that John Kennedy had been killed. They were so bitterly opposed to everything that John Kennedy stood for. But the death of John Kennedy allowed Lyndon Johnson to be president. 
Oh, yeah. Wait a minute. Where was Johnson from? Texas. Okay? This is what gives rise to the conspiracy theories. It's a little bit too convenient. This guy that the Texans hate is killed and a Texan becomes president. Well, they wouldn't have been cheering if they had known what Lyndon Johnson had in mind. Because Lyndon Johnson had in mind nothing less than the dismantling of Southern society and culture. Lyndon Johnson intended to take on the system of Jim Crow. Ah, now we get into the question of motives. What causes people to do what they do? What causes presidents to choose the courses of action that they choose? What motivated Lyndon Johnson to be the great hero of American civil rights? The Abraham Lincoln of his day. Now, I realize that there are a lot of fans of Abraham Lincoln that would just roll over in, well, maybe not their graves, they're still alive, Lincoln's grave, uh, to hear Lincoln compared with Lyndon Johnson. But in fact, a very strong argument can be made that Lyndon Johnson completed what Abraham Lincoln started. Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves, but he certainly didn't change Southern attitudes on race. And the attitude change required another hundred years at least. And Lyndon Johnson decided that he was going to be the agent of that change. How many of you have read any of the volumes, the three volumes so far, on Lyndon Johnson by Robert Caro? If you're looking for a really good read on presidential history, read Caro. Caro knows how to tell a story. He uh, kind of warps the story. He writes, I like sometimes think he, he writes uh, opera rather than history <laughs> because it's very clear that there are heroes and there are villains. And strangely enough, in his first couple of volumes, Lyndon Johnson is a villain. Lyndon Johnson almost literally wears the black hat. Ah! But this sets us up, I have to assume. He hasn't gotten to the vice presidency, the presidency yet. He's said to be working on it. He's been working on it for 25 years. But uh, is Hank Meyer here, by the way, this evening? No. I was just going to tell Hank, don't worry, there's hope. <laughs> Carol's, Carol's been working on Johnson for 25, so you've got a long way to go. Anyway, um, he sets Johnson up as this villain. I think the better for his redemption to occur. I was talking to a, a writing workshop out at the Allendale campus last evening. And I was talking to the students out there. It was a creative nonfiction writing workshop. And we were talking about what constitutes creative nonfiction. We got to talking about memoirs and the like. And this brought up, how many, any of you read The Confessions of St. Augustine? It's sort of a classic of Western literature. And it's the story of this really dark-dyed sinner who embraces the gospel and becomes a father of the church. But it's a great story in that it's, it's a wonderful book to read, and you all should read it, even those people who don't care about the conversion part, because the part that he tells about his days of dissipation are terrific. And the dissipation is all the darker because it makes the conversion even better. I've been trying to make a similar argument uh, to my Texas friends. I wrote a book a few years ago 
on the Texas Revolution. And you probably, maybe you don't know what the Texas Revolution was, but it was the Battle of the Alamo and the stuff that happened before and after that. And I, in all honesty, I describe the heroes of the Alamo before they become heroes of the Alamo. And people like William Barrett Travis, people like James Bowie, even people like Davy Crockett, these were not upstanding citizens of the Republic. In fact, if I told you some of the things that Bowie and especially Travis had been up to, well, I'd have to ask the younger people in the audience to leave the room. And for the rest of you, your ears would burn red. These were not upstanding characters. And sometimes my Texas audience, parts of my Texas audience, really take, take issue with my telling this part of the story. And they're quite offended because I'm talking about the heroes of Texas history. But I try to explain. In fact, it makes the story better. It makes their heroism greater if they were these dastardly characters, as indeed they were. And then on that one morning, March 6th, 1836, Alamo Day, and it's honored in Texas history and politics, in 90 minutes on that morning, these very checkered individuals become great heroes. And the reason, it seems to me, that the story is so much more compelling that way is that it basically says we all can be heroes. As ordinary, as imperfect as we might be, there's hope for us. This is the message of St. Augustine's Confessions. And I confess at this point that I've really lost my train of thought as to where this digression started. So, let's see. Oh, yes, Lyndon Johnson and his conversion. His conversion awaits. We're hanging on volume four to see what Carol's going to come up with. But anyway, Lyndon Johnson decided that he was going to take on the system of segregation in the South. Why? Well, he had grown up. He, had, he liked to say that he had grown up poor in the Texas Hill Country. Well, not poor by Hill Country standards. And, and the Texas Hill Country, if you haven't been there, is picturesque but not a good place to make a living. Even the goats have a hard time finding anything to graze on. But Johnson's family was fairly, was quite middle class by Hill Country standards. Even so, Johnson himself felt at a disadvantage, at a social disadvantage, to other people in Texas. He went to what is now called Texas State University, what until a couple of years ago was Southwest Texas State University, and before that was Southwest Texas Teachers College. That's where he went. He simply went to a teacher's college. And by the time he got to Washington, he found himself surrounded by people who had degrees from Harvard and from Yale and from the University of Michigan. And Southwest Texas Teachers College, where's that? They looked on Lyndon Johnson as a hick. What did he know? He talked like a Texan, and anybody knows that if you talk like a Texan, you must be stupid. <laughs> well, just consider the reaction of much of the media to the current president. After all, my gosh, if you're going to say nuclear, you can't know anything, right? Well, Lyndon Johnson by the estimate of the people who knew him best, including some Ivy League types, 
was one of the most intelligent individuals they'd ever encountered. Eric Goldman, a history professor at Princeton, who knew Ivy League types, who had known other presidents, once described Lyndon Johnson as possessing more mental firepower than anybody he had ever encountered. He thought Johnson was simply scary, smart. Well, but Johnson always felt at a disadvantage to what he liked to call those Harvard types. Those Harvard types who thought they knew everything and who couldn't stand Texans. And I have no idea what the perception of Texas is in Michigan generally. I will say that my reception at Grand Valley has been as friendly and welcoming as can be. Maybe it's because I'm not from Texas. I, I don't know how Michiganers look at Texas. But I do know that there are a lot of people who just, they hear Texas and it just, they're just kind of put off by the idea. And Johnson felt this. Johnson also realized that all of those people who loved John Kennedy, and there were a lot of people who loved John Kennedy, felt that he was a usurper. Maybe they didn't blame him directly for the assassination, although some did. They still thought that he had stolen the place that was supposed to be occupied by John Kennedy. And there, as I say, there were a lot of people who loved John Kennedy. Historians and political scientists often rank presidents. And when they rank presidents at the top are Lincoln, Washington, Franklin Roosevelt, and then below that, Harry Truman, oh, that's Theodore Roosevelt. Some people still will include Andrew Jackson in the top 10. John Kennedy ranks around 20 <coughs> in terms of the impact that he had on American life. But when you ask the question to the public at large, just popularity ratings of presidents, Kennedy is right up there with Lincoln. Kennedy remains beloved. How do we know Kennedy remains beloved? Well, who do you think Barack Obama is modeling his campaign on? Who does he want to be seen as? The new John Kennedy. And there are some interesting parallels there. Okay, so Johnson comes in burdened with his own sense of inferiority. And this is a complicated thing because Johnson knew he was smart, but he didn't know how smart he was. And he thought that other people were looking down on him. And if enough people look down on you, then you start to question your own ability. He knew perfectly well that the Kennedy crowd hated him. And he knew perfectly well that Bobby Kennedy absolutely despised him. And Bobby Kennedy was plotting to remove him from office and take the position himself. Okay, so there's all of this that's going on in Johnson's mind. What can he accomplish? He can do something that John Kennedy never could have done. John Kennedy started to do, but didn't get anywhere on him. That was reform the race question in the United States. John Kennedy himself, for some of the same reasons as Franklin Roosevelt, hesitated to get behind civil rights legislation. This after the board of the Brown versus Board of Education decision in 1954, which mandated the desegregation of schools. This after the Montgomery bus boycott of 1955. This after the sit-ins that began in 1960. This after the March on Washington by Martin Luther King in 1963. It was only after that that Kennedy supported the introduction of a civil rights bill in Congress. And the bill as long as it had Kennedy's name on it, 
went nowhere. Why not? Because Southerners, the ones who still held positions of influence, were not about to be lectured to by some Massachusetts liberal. No. Civil rights reform was going to require a Southern president. Southerners might listen to a Southerner. They wouldn't listen to a Northerner in very much the same way. That somebody outside a family is not allowed to criticize members of the family. The family pulls together when outsiders start poking their noise, noses in. But when the outsiders are gone, then the family, they can be just as critical as you want to be of each other. And that's the way it was with Johnson. And this is where the catch-22 that I was talking about fits in. The civil rights system, or more precisely the Jim Crow system in the South, could not be reformed until a Southerner was president. Because the South, and in the Senate, it only takes a minority to filibuster and to block legislation. And the South could block legislation on civil rights. They could only be persuaded to give way if a Southern president told them it had to be done. But a Southerner could not become president as long as the Jim Crow system persisted in the South. How do I know this? Well, how many Southern presidents were there? between the Civil War and the 1960s? Well, a half of one, if you count Woodrow Wilson, who was born in Virginia, but lived his adult life in the North. Okay, so he was, and he only became president because the Republican Party split in 1912 when Theodore Roosevelt walked out. But no other Southerner could get elected president. Why not? Because to rise up in politics, you have to have a state and local base first. Nobody gets to drop into the political race from the top unless, unless you're a general. If you're a general like Dwight Eisenhower, if you're a general like Ulysses Grant, you don't have to have come up the ladder. You can come in from the top. But if you're not a general, you have to have a local base. To have a local base in the South, you had to cultivate those very white supremacists who opposed civil rights legislation. And by the time you rose to the level of national visibility, you had so much baggage behind you that you were never a viable candidate. Not only did Southerners not get elected president between the Civil War and the 1960s, they didn't even get nominated for president. They didn't even get nominated, they, they rarely got nominated for vice president. Lyndon Johnson only got nominated for vice president because John Kennedy thought he would decline the offer to join him on the ticket. But Johnson surprised him and said yes. So Lyndon Johnson becomes president at the end of 1963. And he immediately he makes it part, well, he makes it his first priority to get civil rights reform passed. Why? This is where the mixed motive comes in. It was partly because Lyndon Johnson wanted to be important. Lyndon Johnson wanted to be remembered by history. And he knew that, as I suggested earlier, whoever pushed civil rights legislation through Congress would be considered the modern heir to Abraham Lincoln, who would have completed the revolution that Abraham Lincoln started. So that was, that was part of it. Johnson had a towering ego. Oh boy, I'm tempted to tell that story about Johnson. Who who's here and has heard my joke about Lyndon Johnson? No? 
Okay. <laughs> well, if you, how many of you have visited Austin? Have you visited the Johnson Library? The Johnson Library is a little bit more elaborate. How many of you have been to Ann Arbor and visited the Ford Library? Uh, those of you have seen both. Uh, which is a little bit more, shall we say, intimidating? <laughs> the Johnson Library looks like a mausoleum. It's this enormous thing that rises up beside I-35 on the edge of the campus of the University of Texas. That gives you an idea of the size of Lyndon Johnson's ego, but this story does too. In 1960, Lyndon Johnson was running for president. Actually, he was running at this point for the Democratic nomination for president. And he was preparing for a debate. The three leading candidates were going to have a debate, a televised debate. And they were in the green room waiting to go out, and they were just sharing chit-chat. The three leading candidates were, well, Lyndon Johnson from Texas, John Kennedy from Massachusetts, and Stuart Symington, another senator from Missouri. Now, Kennedy was by far the junior of the three. Johnson was the Senate Majority Leader. He was the most powerful figure in Congress. Symington was very distinguished. He had a long career. And they were just chatting back and forth. And, and John Kennedy, Jack as he was usually known, um, turned to Johnson and Symington. And he said, fellas, Stu, Lyndon, i got to tell you about a strange dream I had last night. In this dream, God reached down from heaven. God reached right down from heaven and tapped me on the shoulder. And he said, Jack, you're my boy. You're going to win the Democratic nomination. You're going to be the next president of the United States. What do you think of that? Symington shook his head, said, I don't know what to think of that. That's because it's very strange. It's, it's very puzzling. Because, you see, I had a dream last night. And in my dream, God reached down from heaven and tapped me on the shoulder. And he said, Stu, you're the one. This is your year. You're going to get the nomination. You're going to win the presidency. What do you think of that? Lyndon Johnson just listened through all this and he shook his head, kind of furrowed his brow, tugged on, he had a long chin, tugged on his chin and then he tugged on one of those long ears and he said, this really is very strange because I had a dream last night and in my dream, I don't remember tapping either one of you <laughs> on the shoulder. <laughs> Anyway, Johnson decided that civil rights reform was going to make his reputation. He also decided, and this is where I have to admire Lyndon Johnson. There are a lot of things that are easy to dislike about Lyndon Johnson. But I got to admire him because the main reason he promoted civil rights reform was that he decided it was the right thing to do. He had grown up in a Texas that was marred by segregation, and the segregation applied in Texas not simply to African Americans, but to Hispanics as well. Right out of Southwest Texas Teachers College, 
He taught school in Catula, Texas. And his pupils were all Mexican children, children of Mexican immigrants. And he saw the kind of exceedingly difficult lives they lived. He saw how they were looked down upon by whites in the neighborhood, how they were treated fully as second-class citizens of African-Americans, where he taught subsequently in Houston. He saw the same attitude toward blacks in Houston. And he decided that this was simply unsupportable in a democracy. In a country like the United States, this vestige of the old days, this vestige of the slavery era could not be allowed to persist. And he decided that he was going to put all of his persuasive skill, all of his authority, all of his power behind civil rights reform. Despite the fact that he knew it would cost him and his political party dearly. And on the night, and well, it's a long but very interesting story, a chapter in American political history, how Johnson managed to ram that civil rights bill through Congress. Johnson was, Johnson was absolutely shameless in using every technique of persuasion to get people to support him. Lyndon Johnson was not effective on television. He was devastating on the telephone. Uh, in the course of the lectures, I've talked about how presidents, different presidents master different media and different stages of technology and how Theodore Roosevelt became the president he became in large part because he understood the newspaper business in the days, in the early days of the mass newspaper circulation. When newspapers cost a penny and there were these circulation battles. Franklin Roosevelt owed a great deal of his success to his virtuosity in the use of radio. Franklin Roosevelt spoke on the radio to millions of Americans, but he used the radio in such a way that those millions of Americans thought he was speaking to them directly. John Kennedy was brilliant on television. And you can tell this, there's a sort of a little bit of a controlled experiment in 1960 when John Kennedy is debating Richard Nixon for the general election. And those people who listened to the debates on the radio and were asked, who do you think won? Most of them said Nixon won. Those people who watched the debates on the television, most of them said that Kennedy won. Lyndon Johnson was brilliant on the telephone. How do you know? How can you tell? If you go to the website of the LBJ Library, and you can actually get there from the website from the, the Ford Library Museum, because they're all connected to the National Archives and Record Administration. And you can go there. You can listen. You can download an audio file and listen to Johnson on the telephone. And it's remarkable how this guy can use the telephone. Ronald Reagan would come along, and he would be even better than Kennedy at television. The Internet has yet to find its president or its political candidate who has figured out exactly how to exploit all the possibilities of the Internet. But I'm just going to make a prediction here that within the next 10 years, some president is going to figure out how to make use of this new medium and will just change our ways of thinking about the presidency, just as each 
stage of technological development has done in the past. Johnson also was astonishingly effective in person. And again, I, I spoke to a small group about the Johnson treatment. How many of you heard the story of the Johnson treatment? Okay, again, just a few of you. All right. Well, the Johnson, I won't go into the whole thing. I'll just describe the half Johnson. <laughs> Lyndon Johnson, well, one of the things I didn't tell you is Lyndon Johnson was elected to Congress when Franklin Roosevelt was president. And as a freshman congressman, Lyndon Johnson realized that connections meant a lot in Washington. So he wanted to make sure that he met everybody as soon as possible. And so he took a room in a boarding house. And in those days, a lot of members of Congress lived in a boarding house. They didn't have homes in Washington. They still kept their primary residence back in their congressional districts. And so they stayed in a boarding house. And Johnson found out which boarding house most of the congressmen stayed in. And he decided to take a room there. And he tried to figure out how the best way to meet the other people in the boarding house would be. Excuse me, in the rooming house. Excuse me, in the rooming house. Um, so how to, how to meet them all. Now, what does everybody have to do during the course of a day? What would they all do in a... And this rooming house is like a big dormitory, basically. Ah, they all use the bathroom. So Johnson would lie in wait in the bathroom. He would shave four or five times. He would brush his teeth about 25 times. He'd be in there, and a lot of people thought, wait a minute, this is a little bit weird. This guy's hanging around the bathroom? I don't know. Anyway, but he got to meet people. He would also, he would figure out how influential members of the executive branch got from their homes, often in Georgetown, to their offices. And he would sort of, well, these days we'd say he would stalk them. What he would do is he would figure out, okay, what street did they walk down? Okay, they walked down this part of Pennsylvania Avenue. And he would stand there in the, the windows of one of the shops and, you know, see them coming. And then as they pass by, I'd say, oh, oh, Secretary Perkins. Well, how funny running into you here. And are we going the same I guess we are. And so he'd walk along. So Johnson made all these connections, but when it came to actually persuading people, he would, he would use his imposing physical presence. Now, I won't, I won't go into all of the gory details, because some of the details are rather gory. I'll, I'll keep it uh, for family audiences. But what he used to do is the half Johnson consisted of taking a legislator who was on the borderline, couldn't decide whether to go along or not, and invite him into the Oval Office. Or before that, when he was majority leader, in the majority leader's office. Invite them into the office. And he would sort of sidle up next to him, and then he would throw an arm around him in a very friendly fashion and start talking about the merits of this piece of legislation and how it was good for the country and it would be good for them and it was good for the party and they really ought to get on board. And if they still hesitated, then he would draw them a little bit closer. He was a big guy. And he had a really big head, very imposing. And he would draw them closer, and then he would start tapping them on the chest. And his big, long index finger, these great big hands, and he'd start thumping them on the chest. And they wouldn't know what to do. They'd never been treated this way. And they they would realize very quickly that they weren't going to be released <laughs> until they said yes. Well, those who resisted 
the half Johnson, were sometimes subjected to the full Johnson. Not just one arm around, but both arms around. And Johnson would go forehead to forehead. And when he got excited, as he often did, when he was speaking on behalf of something that he thought was important, the spit would fly out of his mouth. And there they were, trapped. There's one great picture that shows up in a lot of... Well, in fact, it shows up... Uh, Gleaves uses a textbook I'm the co-author of. There's a picture of Johnson and Senator Theodore Green. And Johnson is actually restraining himself, I guess, because he knows there's a cameraman present. But he's leaning over Green like this. Green is a relatively short guy. And Green is kind of leaning back. <laughs> anyway, by these means, by other means, by promising favors, if people would come on board, by persuading Everett Dirksen, the Senate Minority Leader from Illinois, that the time had come to live up to the promise of that other great son of Illinois, Abraham Lincoln, that Dirksen should convince the Republicans to get on board. Johnson got his civil rights bill, but he knew what it would cost. On the night that he signed the civil rights bill, he took his personal secretary, Bill Moyers, another Texan aside. And he said, Bill, we have just delivered the South to the Republican Party for the next generation. Now, for Johnson, a lifelong Democrat, a person whose political fortunes had always been tied to the Democratic Party, this was a very serious consequence. And Johnson was as astute a student of American politics as has ever lived. And he was absolutely right. Until the 1960s, the South had been democratic to a man and a woman. Well, democratic to a white man and woman, but they were the only ones who voted. So they were the only ones who counted. However, Johnson recognized that Southerners were only Democrats because they were still replaying the battles of James Buchanan and Abraham Lincoln. They were still refighting the Civil War. And the Civil War had been a Republican project. Memories in the South go way back. And people, Southern conservatives, far more conservative than the average Republican in the nation at large, were Democrats because their pappies had been Democrats and their grandpappies had been Democrats all the way back to, shoot, some cases, Andrew Jackson. Johnson's embrace of civil rights, a Democratic president, a Democratic president in favor of civil rights. He got his bill, but he gave permission for all those conservative Southerners to gravitate from the party of their childhood and their ancestry to the party of their, what shall I call it, their ideology, their belief system. And starting in 1965, continuing through the 60s into the 70s, the South went Republican. Now the South is the home of the Republican Party. The center of gravity of the Republican Party is no longer in its birthplace in places like Michigan. The center of gravity is of the Republican Party is in the South. And Lyndon Johnson's prediction was borne out with a vengeance. But he did it because he thought it was right and the country is much better off for it. Now, Lyndon Johnson has a lot 
on his record, has a lot on his conscience. We can blame him for all sorts of things, including the war in Vietnam. You can blame him if you want for the excesses of the great society. And in his desire to outdo Franklin Roosevelt, he probably did carry a lot of things too far. But if you remember one thing about Lyndon Johnson, remember that he pushed civil rights legislation through. He changed with that bill and the companion piece, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, he changed the face of American society. And, hey, to make it contemporary, he made it possible for somebody like Barack Obama to credibly contest for the presidency of the United States. I will stop there and see if I've said anything that provokes questions. I hope I have. Yes, Mandy. I think you know about the story that you said you tell us about It has nothing to do with the presidency, but it does have something to do with teaching. So, shall I, should I tell the story? Or? Sure. All right. You'll remember that I was talking about how teachers and public speakers get this sense of what's working and what's not, and they, you know, they tend to be encouraged by what's working. When I was in college, I took a class in behavioral psychology. And behavioral psychology is the branch of psychology that tries to change behaviors. It doesn't so much probe into the psyche, but it tries to get organisms, eventually people, to change their behavior. B.F. Skinner was one of the pioneers of behavioral technology, uh, behavioral psychology, and he managed to teach pigeons to play ping pong. <laughs> Who would have thought it? But you can do it. The way you do it is, you put a pigeon on a ping pong table. <laughs> Take down the net. Just put a pigeon on a ping pong table and roll a ping pong ball at the pigeon. And if the pigeon kind of looks at the ping pong ball or moves toward the ping pong ball, you reward the pigeon. You feed him a piece of corn or whatever pigeons like. Okay? And so the pigeon... Pigeon doesn't know what's going on, but the pigeon realizes, if I do this, I get rewarded. Okay. So the next step is to, you make it, you have to raise the bar, so to speak. And so what you do then is, the next step, you make the pigeon take a step toward the ping pong ball and then sort of aim to peck the ping pong ball. And the pigeon doesn't know, you don't tell a pigeon anything, pigeons wouldn't know what you're saying anyway. But if just by random, the pigeon will do this now and then. And when, you, when the pigeon does it, then you reward it. And you no longer reward it simply for looking in the direction of the ping pong ball. So you channel the behavior in the direction you want. Next step, the pigeon has to sort of flutter a wing toward the ping pong ball to get rewarded. And eventually the pigeons catch on and they do it. Until now, you bounce the ball toward the pigeon and the pigeon has to, actually has to hit the ball with his wing. Okay? To get rewarded. And then you bring up the net. And now the pigeon has to hit the ball back over the net before it gets rewarded. And Skinner showed you can actually do this. And you can get pigeons to play ping pong. I don't know if they're any good, but hey. It's kind of like the person who said was asked when he saw a dog walking on its hind legs. Well, you know, is that dog pretty good at walking on its hind legs? It's beside the point if it's good, it's walking on its hind legs. Anyway, so... I was told this story. I cannot vouch for its accuracy, but it, it sounds reasonable that there was a previous version of this behavior, the behavioral psychology class that I was in where the students were all required to come up with an experiment in behavioral psychology. 
and they were going to have to you know, do the experiment where they would modify something, some animal or some person's behavior. And so, they all got together. All the students in the class got together. And they decided that they were going to do a joint project. And the subject of the experiment, the subject of the project, was going to be the teacher. And what they were going to try to do, their, the goal they were aiming for by the end of the semester was to have to teach the teacher to climb the wall on the right-hand side of the classroom. Now, you might think this is bizarre, but hardly more bizarre than teaching a ping pong, uh, the pigeon to play ping pong. And the way they did it, they all got it together among themselves. They didn't tell the teacher about this, of course. And so what they did was, for the first week, they were going to arrange that when the teacher was looking to the right or stepping to the right, they would all pay really close attention. And they would ask really good questions. They'd be really attentive. And when the teacher looked to the left or stepped to the left, They'd doze off, they'd knock their books on the floor, and the teacher, not at all aware of what was happening, just you know, kind of found himself gravitating toward the right. Okay, this went on for a week or two. Then they raised the bar. Now the teacher actually has to be in contact with the wall on the right side of the classroom. Okay? so. The teacher's walking this way, you know, no particular response. It's a neutral response. But just by chance, the teacher leans on the wall. And all of a sudden, boy, they're listening. They're hanging. They're edges of their seats. They're hanging on every word. They're the best students he's ever encountered. All right? Week later, they up the ante. He's got to have one hand above his head on the wall. Okay? Same sort of thing. He has no idea what's going on. And he's not even aware that he's spending so much time on the right-hand side of the class, but he's convinced, boy, he is a really good teacher. <laughs> now, he's got to have both hands on the wall. Okay? It's, he finds it a little bit awkward, but hey, you know, he gets used to it. Then, both hands and one foot. At that point, they declared the experiment a success. They knew they really couldn't get him up the wall. That would defy laws of physics, but not laws of psychology. Other questions? Perhaps more closely connected to presence. Yes. Um, my mother is originally from Mobile, Alabama, and moved back there after my dad died in 91. And all of my southern relatives continue to this day to refer to the Civil War as the recent um, discomfort between the states. <laughs> and where I'm going with this is in talking about the, the civil rights and what happened. Last night, and it was something that I just caught on the national news before coming down here, they were noting that something happened last night that has some of the Democratic Party quite upset, which is that 90% of the black vote went to Obama and 75% of the white vote went to Clinton, and they're not sure what this could mean in a general election. This gets at the, the original theme of the lecture. What do you make of democracy? 
Obviously, it's an aspect of democracy that people get to vote for whomever they want to vote for, for whatever reason they vote for. And here's, here I'm going to make a point to you that I make to my students. One of the peculiarities of, what shall I call it, a pluralist democracy like the United States, where there are lots of different views and lots of different interests, when it comes to electing people or voting for or against pieces of legislation, we don't inquire into the motives for the vote. All we do is count the votes. And the most votes wins. When I was talking about Johnson and civil rights, why did Everett Dirksen vote the way he did? Why did the other supporters of the bill vote the way they did? Did they think it was right? Were they afraid that Lyndon Johnson was going to react against them, retaliate against them if they didn't go along? I don't know. And from the purposes of Lyndon Johnson, it doesn't make any difference. He got the votes he wanted. But what does it mean when people do vote on... Well, let's just suppose this poll is accurate, and let's suppose that this carries forward. And what if it becomes the case that Barack Obama is the candidate of black America and Hillary Clinton is the candidate of white America. Suppose this goes into the general election and suppose it becomes the case that Barack Obama is the candidate of black America and John McCain is the candidate of white America. What do we make of this? There are very few people, I think, who would say, oh, that's great. No, this causes people a lot of concern. And this is, I mean, you raised the question, I think, because you're at least somewhat concerned about it. Absolutely. And, and people have good reason for concern. And I'll come back to this in just a moment, but before I do, I want to point out <laughs> that you can interpret the civil rights bill that Lyndon Johnson was instrumental in passing as a triumph of democracy or as an abuse of democracy. It's a triumph of democracy if you look at American democracy as a national thing, where the will of the nation as a whole, as mobilized in the federal Congress, should prevail. But there were plenty of people in the South who defended the Southern way of doing things as an exercise in local democracy, in democracy at the state level. And the segregationist laws that were in force in every state of the South were popular laws. They were laws passed by a majority of those states, majorities in those states. And yeah, you can argue that, okay, well, blacks were disenfranchised, so it wasn't an honest majority, but hey, even if blacks had had the vote, they didn't have the numbers to prevent these laws from being passed. And this goes back to the start of the lecture. Who was right, James Buchanan or Abraham Lincoln? James Buchanan almost certainly was correct that opposition, armed opposition to secession was unpopular. And if put to a vote, Americans wouldn't have supported it. Abraham Lincoln didn't have popular support, at least not at first. So, and the whole question of secession. Secession was justified by the seceding states on grounds of democracy. Hey, democracy is all about self-government. Shouldn't South Carolina, 
Shouldn't Virginia, shouldn't Mississippi, shouldn't Texas have the right to determine the government they should live under? That's the fundamental premise of democracy. So how do you divide this stuff up? And what happens, to come back to your question, what happens if democracy produces results you don't like? What happens if democracy produces results you find abhorrent? What do you do? Do you throw out democracy? Do you change the rules? Do you simply grin and bear it? I don't have the answer. It's something that everybody living in a democracy needs to consider now and then, though. And it gets back to this question, the, the origin of all of this, where President Bush, with good reason, I think, is promoting democracy in the Middle East. And you know, comparatively speaking, American democracy has worked pretty well. Yeah, pretty well over the long run. There were some rough patches like, well, the Civil War. And it's probably fair to say that democracies tend to be more peaceful than authoritarian regimes. But even that's kind of problematic because, do you remember, not from real life, very many of you, any of you perhaps, but from your study of history, how Adolf Hitler came to power in Germany. He was elected. Okay. Now, he later but through parliamentary means, suppressed German democracy, but the Germans voted themselves a Nazi government. What do you do in a case like this? What do you do when the Palestinians hold democratic elections and elect Hamas, a terrorist group? What do you do in this case? I don't know. I have the luxury as a history professor, as a mere history professor, the luxury of irresponsibility. I can raise these questions. I don't have to provide any answers. <laughs> those people, though, who are in positions of responsibility, those people who are in government, do have to come up with answers. They're probably no more confident of their answers than I am. The thing is, they have to come up with an answer. McGeorge Bundy was one of those Harvards that Lyndon Johnson resented and distrusted. He was, he was the national security advisor to John Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson inherited him along with the presidency. And McGeorge, George Bundy had been dean of Harvard College. His Ivy League pedigree went way back. And he circulated with all of the, that Harvard crowd that Johnson distrusted. And McGeorge Bundy used to engage in excuse me, debates till late at night in the Georgetown homes of his friends in Washington. But then there would come a time when most of those friends, well, th those friends were mostly academics, types like me, who can just debate and debate and debate. And we can pose these questions. And then Bundy would say, about the end of the evening, he'd say, well, this is all well and good. But on Monday morning, I've got to go into the office and I've got to make a decision. And this is where it gets hard. And I, as a historian, have to resist the temptation to point out the flaws in various policies of presidents that I've studied. Because it's real easy with hindsight to say, Johnson should have done that, Roosevelt should have done that, Lincoln should have done that, Jackson, you name it. But the fact is that at the time they made those decisions, they made them, I think in most cases, on the best information and intelligence they had. And I'm going to give them credit for having the best of intentions. 
It's easy to criticize politicians and think they're all just a venal bunch of crooks. You know, at the very least, you know, they're a set of rascals and they're mostly out to feather their nests. Now, in my study of history and the history of American politics, yeah, you find that. But if all you're in it for is your own self-interest, frankly, a lot of people in politics, I'm not saying most people in politics, I hate to generalize that much, but there are a lot easier ways to make money than to go into politics. You know, so if that's what you're in it for, go into something else. Most people who go into politics have the public interest at heart. They sometimes have peculiar interpretations of the public interest, but nonetheless, they're sincere. And they've got to make decisions. And sometimes they get them right, sometimes they get them wrong, but at least they're the ones who have to make the decisions. Other questions? Yes, over here. I was intrigued by your discussion of Johnson's personality, and I wonder how you would compare him with Nixon and similarities. Nixon. Nixon is a remarkable character. I'm sorely tempted to do a biography of Richard Nixon. Uh, some of you know that I'm in the process of writing a series of biographies that are supposed to cover the entire ground of American history. And I'm just finishing, in fact, I can, I'm pleased to report that this afternoon, when I did have a little bit of time off, I finished the revisions of my Franklin Roosevelt book, and I got a report, sadly, Roosevelt died. But anyway, so I'm thinking of what's going to be the next book in the series, and I'm seriously considering Richard Nixon, not because Richard Nixon is a particularly attractive character, but he's very intriguing, and I don't get Richard Nixon, and I think it's worth spending a while trying to figure out Richard Nixon. I am cautioned by this. I... Some of you have read the work of uh, the late Stephen Ambrose, a historian who was very popular with lots of stuff. And to my money, the best book he ever wrote was his three-volume biography of Richard Nixon. And it's a very good look at Nixon. But I, I knew Stephen Ambrose, and we were talking some while after he finished volume three. And so I said, I, was, I said something about Richard Nixon. And Steve Ambrose, as I say, he was a wonderful guy, uh, but he was also, he wouldn't, wouldn't have denied the fact that he was a sort of a hard liver. He was a hard drinker, hard smoker. He had strong opinions about everything. And I remember as soon as I uttered the word Nixon, he said, and he had, after all those years of smoking and drinking, he had this very gravelly voice. He said, God damn, Nixon. I wasted a decade of my life on that son of a bitch. Well, I don't know if I'm going to give him that much of my life, but, but nonetheless, he's an intriguing character, especially because he really cuts against the grain of people's perceptions of politicians. If there's one thing most politicians have in common, it's... Uh, a certain pleasure that comes from being around people. They're gregarious types. They like people. They like to talk. They like to shake hands. You know, po politics in a democracy is ultimately a popularity contest. And you're only going to be popular if people like you. And probably you're only going to get people to like you if you sort of like them. Richard Nixon wasn't likable, and he didn't like people. What I can't figure out is why he went into politics. I can tell you a little bit about why he succeeded in politics. He was probably almost as intelligent as Lyndon Johnson. He was exceedingly sharp. He was also 
there are different kinds of intelligence. And any of you who've been around universities know that there are, call them sort of the literary intelligences, people who are good at, at reading and writing. And then those of you who've been in the business world, or maybe in politics or elsewhere, realize that there's another kind of intelligence. Sometimes there's an overlap between the two. Call it a practical intelligence or a social intelligence. How you understand how people think and how to get them to go along with what you want them to do. I had a chance to speak to members of the Leadership Academy at lunch today. And this is the essence of leaders. Richard Nixon could do that kind of thing, but it didn't come easily to him. So I'm thinking about writing about Richard Nixon. And while my previous biographies have often been called The Life and Times of, say, Andrew Jackson, this one is going to be called The Lives of Richard Nixon. Although I have been tempted to use this little device where you put parentheses around the V in lives. So anyway, so ask me in about five years. And I'll tell you what the answer to the Richard Nixon question is. Bill, did you have a question? One last question. Yeah, I knew where you were going from our earlier conversation, and I'm not sure whether your opening was uh, just provocative or you really believe all of that. Um, but one of the I'll never tell. One, one of the ideas you advanced is that the Civil War was primarily a conflict between the East and the West, and if you really believe that, then I think you are uh, way under appreciating how much slavery was the issue. When you look at what the South said, why they succeeded, it was clearly about slavery. You bet. Uh, there was a president elected by a Republican Party that their central platform was the ultimate extension of extension, extinction of slavery, and they weren't going to allow that. Secondly, when you mentioned that if a popular referendum was held, the northern majority would have said, go ahead and take a hike. Uh, but James McPherson, in his uh, really seminal study about why did Union soldiers fight, overwhelmingly it was to preserve the Union. And that seems to conflict with that. And then thirdly, uh, Lincoln would argue, and I would agree, that just because you use an election, that doesn't allow you to walk in a democracy. And if you would allow that, then no democracy would be sustained. It would be so fragile that every time somebody got elected that you didn't like, you'd succeed. Right. Now, believe it or not, I agree with everything you said. And that still doesn't exactly undermine what, what my thesis was. The answer to your question, your, your, the preface to your question was, yes, I was primarily trying to be provocative. I don't expect that James Buchanan will ever be considered a great president. And I don't think he deserves to be. He was the wrong man for the moment. If he had been elected 15 years earlier, he might well have been a great president. He had all the preparation to be president. And he had the temperament to be president during a different time. But I didn't, I, I misspoke if I, if I came off as saying that the Civil War was North was, excuse me, east against west rather than north against south. It was definitely north against south. But my point was that it was as much about the west as it was about the south. It was much to the thinking of northerners, including Abraham Lincoln, it was as much about the future of the south, excuse me, the future of the west as about the future of the south. Because the future of the west was the future of the union. And when Lincoln had looked at the way American society, American culture and civilization spread across the country, it was moving from east to west. And if 
the Union lost control of the Mississippi, all of a sudden that would stop expansion out to the West. And it would, or if, it, if the expansion continued, it would be at the sufferance of the South. You're absolutely right that slavery was at the heart of the issue. And here's where we have to distinguish. The question arises, what caused the Civil War? This is a question that's on any introductory history test. And was the Civil War caused by slavery, as supporters of Lincoln and the Union allege, or was it caused by, was it all about states' rights, as Southerners say? And the answer, if you ask me, is both. Because to get a civil war, two things had to happen. Two sides, two parties had to make decisions. Number one, the South had to decide to secede. Why did the South secede? The South seceded over slavery. Every one of the secession conventions, every bill, every statement of the reasons for secession points out that this cherished institution of the South, slavery, is at risk if we, may, if we remain in a union presided over by this black Republican, Abraham Lincoln. So that's why the South seceded, over slavery. There's no denial of that. Even the hardcore defenders of the South can't deny it. All you have to do is look at the ordinances of secession. And slavery is front and center. However, what they also say is, it is our right to secede over whatever cause we want. If we simply don't like the color of Abraham Lincoln's beard, we can secede because states' rights take precedence over the federal union. This is the essence of states' rights. You have the right to secede. You don't have to ask permission of the federal government to secede. Now, they would argue, we have the right to secede. Hey, the slavery issue wasn't the first time the South threatened to secede. And it wasn't just over slavery. In 1832, South Carolina threatened to secede over a tax bill, for heaven's sake. It was the tariff, the import tax of 1828. And South Carolina passed an ordinance of nullification, saying that this measure will not be enforced in South Carolina. And when Andrew Jackson, the then president, indicated that he would enforce the measure against the opposition of South Carolina, South Carolina threatened to secede and said it is our right to secede. So the question of states' rights is conceptually separate from the question of slavery. It's, it, if you believe in states' rights, then you believe in the right to secede. Now, why did the South secede in 1860? Ah, yes, it was over slavery. But the South had talked about seceding for 30 years beforehand. And here I just have to digress briefly because I talked about Andrew Jackson. And Andrew Jackson was president in 1832. And when Andrew Jackson was faced with the possibility of secession by South Carolina, he took exactly the opposite position of James Buchanan. James Buchanan was looking for reasons not to act. It was not in his personality to take forceful action. Leave aside the constitutional questions. But it just wasn't part of his temperament to take strong action. With Andrew Jackson, it was part of his temperament to take strong action. And Andrew Jackson told his Secretary of War to raise an army that he was going to lead into South Carolina, an army of 200,000 men. And when a South Carolina legislator 
came to the White House. He was about to leave Washington to head home for the Christmas holidays when this crisis had reached ahead. He stopped by the White House and he asked President Jackson, he said, Mr. President, do you have a message for my constituents? And Jackson looked at him and he said, yes, I do. Tell my friends in South Carolina. Jackson was a native South Carolinian. Tell my friends in South Carolina that if one of them raises a finger to oppose the enforcement of federal law, I'm going to come down there and hang every one of them the highest tree I can find. When Andrew Jackson talked about hanging people, <laughs> South Carolina listened. As those of you who were here a couple of nights ago know, Andrew Jackson was the only man ever to have killed, only president ever to have killed a man in cold blood. He was in a duel. When Andrew Jackson spoke strongly like that, he wasn't kidding around. And South Carolina backed down. I've often wondered, what would have happened if somebody like Andrew Jackson had been president in 1860? In fact, I'd go so far as to say, what would have happened? If George Washington, those Pennsylvanians, weren't going to pay. That's right. And he raised an army. You bet. He inspected the troops yep. before he sent That's them. right. Okay. Now, what if, Abra what if Andrew Jackson had, what if Abraham Lincoln had been an Andrew Jackson? As much as I respect Abraham Lincoln and the difficulties he was in, one of the reasons the South seceded in 1860 and 1861, and one of the reasons, that the principal reason the South, South Carolina didn't back down was Jackson made clear this means war and you guys are getting crushed. When the South seceded in 1860 and 1861, there were plenty of people in the South who didn't believe that the North would ever fight and who didn't believe that if the North did fight, that the North would win. Thirty years before, Jackson left no doubt on that subject. Between them, Buchanan and Lincoln left plenty of doubt on the subject. And so the South could leave in 1860 and 1861 thinking they're going to let us go. Okay, there was a third part of your question. Now I can't remember what the third part was. <laughs> I don't know which part you covered. Oh, okay. Oh, well, yes. I think you covered it all. Okay, East versus West, slave... Oh, yes. Oh, I'm sorry. But the, the second half of the slavery question was, the South decides to secede. Why does it secede? Well, it's over slavery, but in defense of its state's rights. The second part of the Civil War comes, the North has to decide to oppose secession. Now, that raises the question, so what was Lincoln fighting for? Ah, what was Lincoln fighting for? What did Lincoln say he was fighting for? What did he want to be able to fight for? Lincoln was opposed to slavery. Lincoln rejected the institution of slavery as inhumane, undemocratic, and bad for the soul of America. But Lincoln read his constitution. He read it quite frequently. He was a lawyer. He had debated Stephen Douglas. They had talked these questions up and down. And he knew perfectly well there is nothing in the Constitution that gives the president the authority to abolish slavery in the states where it existed. And he looked at his Constitution and he couldn't find anything in there that even said Congress could abolish slavery in the states where it existed. So what's he going to do? 
Well, the most he can hope to do is to prevent the expansion of slavery into the federal territories because the federal territories are under the direct control of Congress. Oh, but wait, Congress, not the president. So, the South decides to secede. Lincoln would love to be able to eradicate slavery, but he's got no legal or constitutional authority to do so. But he does have the authority to defend the Constitution. He has the responsibility to defend the Constitution. He swore that he would. And this Constitution that he swore on was the Constitution of the United States, not the Constitution of New York and Michigan and Minnesota and Massachusetts and the northern states one by one. It was the Constitution of the United States of America. And this gave him his authority to resist secession because he didn't acknowledge secession. Lincoln never said that the South had seceded. The South was simply in rebellion. Southerners were simply refusing to obey federal laws, were simply blocking the enforcement of federal laws. And just as Lyndon Johnson felt required to do in 1967 in Detroit, when riots convulsed Detroit, Johnson sent in federal troops. There was an insurrection. There was an inability of the state authorities to enforce the law in Detroit. So the federal government steps in. That was the authority on which Lincoln operated during the Civil War. But what did that mean for slavery? It was unclear during the first year of the war what that meant for slavery. And Lincoln went on record as saying slavery was secondary to his purposes. As he said, I would if I could hold the Union together by freeing all of the slaves, I would do so. If I could hold the Union together by freeing none of the slaves, I would do so. If I could hold the Union together by freeing some of the slaves and leaving half of them in chains, I would do that. He did indicate that it was his preference that slavery be abolished, but preference isn't law. And preference isn't something you make war over. So. It was only when the war was, I won't say half over, but well begun, that Lincoln realized that from a political standpoint, this war had to be about slavery. This war was about slavery in a very fundamental sense, despite what the South said. This was, if not for slavery, the South wouldn't have seceded. And furthermore, and this is probably more to the point, Lincoln realized that the North, the Union, the United States, as he put it, might win the war. But if slavery still existed, nothing really would have been won. Because as soon as the war ended, the United States would be back simply where it was when the war began. And the question of, could slavery exist in the states? Could Congress or the president regulate slavery? It would remain as open as ever. Now here, I'm going to, well... Abraham Lincoln had a conflicted relationship with the Supreme Court. And sometimes he acknowledged the authority of the Supreme Court, and sometimes he didn't. During the war, he flouted Supreme Court decisions when it suited his military purpose. He thought that the Dred Scott decision of 1857, which effect well, which overturned the Missouri Compromise, which effectively said that Congress could not ban slavery from the territories, he thought that was an immoral decision. He also thought it was bad law, but it was the law of the land, or so it seemed. So Lincoln had to figure out what to do. And he realized, well, 
he realized he was a lawyer. Lawyers are clever. They can come up with reasons, justifications for doing sort of whatever suits their purpose. And he recognized that under his authority as commander-in-chief, he might issue the Emancipation Proclamation. He could say that slaves should be freed as a war measure. And as long as the war was on, his authority as commander-in-chief, it might be legally challengeable, but he had the army. And when you've got the army behind you, you can do pretty much whatever you want. Of course, the trick was how to do this without alienating those slave states that were still part of the Union. So do you know how the feat was managed? What was his finesse with the Emancipation Proclamation? Ah, this is the irony of, of it all. The Emancipation Proclamation declared, the, declared slaves freed in those states that Lincoln didn't have control over, those states in rebellion. And it said that the slaves in the states that were not in rebellion were still slaves. So it didn't free a single slave. Remarkable. Ah, but it, and this is where Lincoln was exceedingly insightful. It, although it didn't free any slaves, it changed everything. Because it made clear explicitly that the war is about slavery. This is what it comes down to. It made clear that if the Union wins the war, slavery is done. Well, maybe, maybe not. Because Lincoln recognized that his authority as commander-in-chief would lapse at the end of the war. And somebody, some southern planter, would sue to get his slaves back and take the case to the Supreme Court and might win. So do you know what Lincoln did? What do you do when the Constitution doesn't say what you want it to say? You amend, you amend the Constitution. You rewrite it and get it to say what you want. And so Lincoln immediately proposed a 13th Amendment to the Constitution, barring the institution of slavery. Now, it didn't pass until after the war. But it was on the books, and Lincoln understood that it was absolutely necessary. Well, I've gone on far too long You've been very patient and wonderful audience. Thank you all very much.